So now please join me in welcoming Nuala Moore and Professor Ian Robertson. Thank you. Well, it's uh, fantastic to be here. Um, and it's fantastic to be discussing with Nuala. I've really wanted to meet her after reading this book. It is the most compelling read. I really urge you to buy a copy. This is, uh, and I have no interest in this. And I couldn't believe, really, just talking to Nuala, that this was a first book without normally someone telling the story has to get professional writing help. There's no professional writing help. This is a pacey read. So <laughs> <laughs> I really, I really uh, uh, was engrossed by it. And um, I, I mean, where to begin? Let, let's begin where the book begins, Nuala. Mm -hmm. Tell us what it felt like. Is it, was it one or two miles south of Cape Horn? Two miles. Two miles south of Cape Horn, the most dangerous passage of water in the world, the, the graveyard of sailors. And you're, normally you have a, a, a rubber zodiac mm. rib beside you when you're swimming. You're in a small fishing boat with their, your team that itself is vulnerable to these enormous waves that are 18 foot waves, 18 foot waves. Yeah, 16 foot. I mean, foot. just imagine 18 foot, your waves are up to the ceiling there. Oh, Jesus. You know, or, you know, nearly. <gasps> I've PTSD. And they, and they tell you it's too rough mm. for the Zodiac to be launched. So you have to get into the water and the fishing boat will be two or three hundred meters from you. Mm -hmm. And you will be invisible to the boat mm -hmm. in the most remote where the Atlantic, the Pacific, and the Antarctic Ocean. So here's me telling you a story. That's how engrossed mm -hmm. I, I, I was in the book. Tell me what, what, why were you there? What did it feel like doing stepping into that water? Um. Well, I suppose the interesting thing about taking on any project is what we believe it's going to be and the reality. And I think that gap of the imagination and control and understanding gets torn apart when you actually arrive on scene. So for me, the concept of going to Cape Horn was born many years ago and Cape Horn is 100 nautical miles south of the most southern tip of South America. And at that time, I suppose I didn't really understand that. And the swim was the meeting of the oceans where we would start in the Pacific Ocean, where we, me, where I would start to swim in the Pacific Ocean and cross over the meridian into the Atlantic Ocean south of Cape Horn. And all of that is just a swim. Um, Just no, but that's, but that's how you look at it. But then you have the variables and over the, I suppose, the progress of my life from swimming around Ireland and in part of a team and then the ice and then being part of a team to swim from Russia to America and all of these swims, you're developing skill sets. And for me, Cape Horn was this little thing at the back of my head that sat there and no other swimmer had gone there and no other swimmer had taken on the challenge or had been successful enough to take on the challenge. And it's because of the conditions. But it's not necessarily the difficulty in the swim, it's the risk 
of the start. So you can invest all of this energy, all of this time, all of this training, and get there and it may not happen. So for a lot of people, that's a risk too far because we do have this, I suppose, expectation of certainty. So for me, taking on the swim was at a very strange moment in my life where um, control was one of these things I really wanted to feel if I was the person I thought I was. And that is the reason I started it, because for me, the hardest thing in the world was letting go of that boat and uncurling my fingers and trusting my team. And it was an amalgamation of, you know, are you good enough to walk the walk? Are you just a talker? You know, I had all these demons going on. And now I can see a neuroscientist staring at me. <laughs> he can see the people inside of my in head. Admiration. In admiration. <laughs> it's yeah, like, oh my yeah, God, yeah. the voices will come out. Um, <laughs> so I had all of these things going on in my head. So taking on this for me had a different um, element of understanding to when we got there. So the swim in itself cost $18,000. So that's one aspect of it. And I had already pushed myself into the abyss of training. Um, in January, February, March, I was training for two hours at six degrees. So my hands had opened up. I had frostbite. Um, it was the beast from the east in 2018. So I had open sores that I was treating with Manuka honey and cling film. And because you can't take medication, I couldn't take any vasodilators in case it would impact on my blood pressure. So it was all this stuff going on. And then I had a team, I had a nurse, a defibrillator, I had two dive medics whose job it was to get me out of the water. And then when we got there, the whole reality of, well, what happens if anything happens? There isn't anybody coming. Um, it's like 6,000 meters at Mount Everest, and like, there's no helicopter. <laughs> It's like, oh no. And I remember when we got south, the lighthouse keeper um, came over the VHF and he made it very clear that the conditions two miles south of the most southerly tip of Cape Horn, which was 100 nautical miles south of the most southern tip of South America, that it was too rough for a zodiac. Um, so when we talk about 16 foot waves, there zodiac is. Zodiac being the rib. The, the rib, rib yeah. yeah. But you know, when we talk about 16-foot waves, it's not that they're towering down, it's the undulating swell. So you're in and out. So when you have three oceans meeting in one position at 56 degrees south in the most southern tip, there's no land east or west as the world turns at that point when you turn the globe on its axis. And suddenly I'm like, oh my God, I know too much you know, at this point. And it's not that you would go forward, it's you could be pushed back. So the risk was, what if I get in? and I'm pushed back and I don't cross the meridian. So that's a risk, even though I could swim a mile, I may not get the standard mm. for the swim, so I could lose everything. Or I could go into the island and take on a swim and get the accolades. So I had a decision to make at that time. Because you had a choice mm. to do a, a, a safer, safer route inside the island. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't good enough for you. Well, <laughs> you know, it wasn't about being the first swimmer in the world and it wasn't about being the first woman to do a swim from a lighthouse. It wasn't. It was about letting go for me. It was about trusting myself and it was about accepting that like, to be who I am, then I have to let go. Um, so there was an awful lot in it for me at that time. So getting the information that the team couldn't come with me wasn't part of the plan. Coming from a fishing family, when the boat steams away, they have to turn, to turn a fishing vessel of that size she'll have to go forward to turn. In that turn, they can lose sight of me. What if they lose sight of me? I won't survive. But at that point, my biggest problem wasn't if, if I won't survive, it's they have to make the call. 
Like then the pressure was on the team. So they have to pick up the phone, they have to go through that, they have to endure. And it's all of this was going on in my head. So I just went back downstairs and I used to always bring a committee meeting with me. So I would have the St. Martin de Porres, I'd have a little Padre Pio. Um, I had some medals because you just have to have people on board. Um, big committee. <laughs> big committee. And I, you cry. And it's very important to cry at that time, just get it out. And I remember thinking, I have to go now. I had to go, so I had to go upstairs and my, I just said, tell me again, how are you going to get me out of the water? Because we trained on casualty recovery and we had a nurse, a defibrillator, but then you just look at it and think, look, this is about you, you have to let go. So getting into the water, I knew I could have taken the safer route, but that's not what I came for. I didn't come for the safe route, I came to let go. So letting go was as much as staying in control as it was letting go, because they are opposite sides of the same coin. To stay in control, you have to let go. To let go, you have to stay in control. Um, so, yeah. And then all I could think of was, I have to be home for work on Monday. I can't cope with this. <laughs> it's like a complete mess in there. It was like, it was chaotic. Um, so it was all these things. I just, my team just said, you've got to go. So, yeah, I had to go. And you were the first woman in the world to swim. First person in the world. Yes, yeah, first woman first in the world. human being in the world to swim from the Pacific to the, the Atlantic Ocean. Voluntarily. Voluntarily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you, 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 dis mm. you many, several times in the book, you say uh, to yourself, you're on the cusp of your own greatness. Mm. Tell us what you mean by that. Mm. I am the perfect product. I just love it. Um, I think, you know, I think it's, I think I would, I think we all close our eyes and see something. You know, often I just imagine a swagger. I think, you know, my sister used to always have the statement to own your swagger. We should all own our swagger. Um, and I think it's a wonderful thing, you know, for me, I just love the cartoon characters of Bugs Bunny, you know, the, the backside going one way and the little, you know, as he marched <laughs> off into the sunset. Um, so for me, sometimes I love the image of myself that I can portray, that swagger, that movement, that moment. Can I just say, your language, is, own your swagger, I'm going to remember that. It's a brilliant phrase, but there's so many phrases like yeah. that in the book, so sorry for interrupting. Yeah. yeah, so it is, and I think sometimes, you know, you can close your eyes and be very happy with what you see, and then sometimes you can just look in the mirror and you can kind of say, well, that's not me, that's not what it is that I want for myself. And, and I think sometimes I drifted into my own grey, I drifted backwards. And I remember in particular, um, when you're doing something, like you can close your eyes, I would always be able to visualize, like when I, when I was trying to swim a thousand meters at zero degrees back in 2012, I was shocked. Um, my previous long swim was 26 kilometers across Lake Zurich, which was a 12 hour swim. And then suddenly I ended up in Tumen, Siberia uh, by choice. And uh, it was minus 33 degree air and zero degree ice. And they were using a chainsaw to cut the swimming pool out. And I was like, who gets out of bed to swim a thousand meters? It's like, not me. So I remember getting into the pool and after 150 meters, stop. I couldn't breathe. For anyone who now goes into the sea, you have that cold shock. But like 11, 12 years ago, I had no clue what it was. And I had never in my life felt that sense of panic. And for me, that fascinated me, like, what stopped me? Um, so after 150 meters, I got out of the water and I was so blown away that I couldn't swim a thousand meters. 
So immediately, I could see myself finishing it, I could see myself achieving it, but I couldn't figure out the, the, the piece in the middle. Um, so I always kind of worked on training for what stops me. And in there, that was the difference between the reaching out and the getting there. So for me, the cusp of greatness for me was trying to understand that bridge between here and there. Yeah, so that's so interesting. I mean, it's very easy to read this book about, okay, these, your next goal, achieving mm. this. But it was, it was possibly more of an internal journey for yourself. Oh, yeah. In a way. Absolutely. And, and, and for locating something that's stopping you doing something. Mm. And then, as you say, I say finding your true self, or at least finding the self you wanted mm. to be, someone who could control. And you endured the most incredible amounts of pain mm. in doing that. I mean, you, your account of going swimming around Ireland, there, mm. was, there was five of you in the team? It was six swimmers with six five swim. main swimmers, yeah. And six, six, six swam around Ireland. And it was, I mean, grueling wouldn't. <laughs> uh, it was, it was a, just a, a savagely difficult journey. And... and um, and at the end of it, there was this tremendous kind of sense of anticlimax mm. as well. Mm. Um, how does that, you know, I mean, the question is why? <laughs> you know, why? Uh, given there was so much pain, and, you know, I'm also thinking of the, the you know, the, the, the scenes in Russia, you know, a team rushing a comatose swimmer into the recovery room. Frozen. Teams of doctors, frozen stiff. Popsicles. <laughs> and and this, this constant sense of being on the brink of death. Mm. I used to find that very exciting. I had somebody, well, to, yeah, I had somebody yeah. to defrost. It was like, oh my God, it's so exciting. Yes. Watching the blood yeah, coming yeah. back into their bodies yeah, was exciting. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> this is my greatest fear. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, you've got an immense drive. So, mm. what was driving you? Um, I suppose in a way, like when we started to swim around Ireland um, in 2005, I was invited to be part of a team uh, to swim around Ireland. And it was such a funny thing at the time because we broke it down. Um, like as swimmers, all we have hmm. to do is to be able to swim between four and six hours every day. And that, like if you're not working and if you're not doing, no, but like it's like a marathon runner or a trainer or somebody taking on a project. So you look at it in that way. Um, and you can train to be that strong. You can train to swim between four and six hours every day. And, and if you only have to do that, that's very easy. Um, and I, actually, a very funny story is because I love talking to school kids because they're the toughest audience. <laughs> and I went to Ventry School and to schools around because I liked to talk about it because it's lovely to look at their map and they would be able to track and trace and, and follow things along. <laughs> and I was back in Ventry School and I was looking at the group and there was just this little boy and he was having none of it. He was really... <laughs> Really not interested, um, and he said, "Look, what's your problem?" And I, <laughs> and I said to him, "You know, we, well, we'll be swimming between four and six hours every day." And his thing was like, Who, "Where are you going to sleep?" And I said, "Well, at home, at, in the hotel or whatever at night." And he said, "Who'll carry your bag?" 
And the, there was a truck to carry the bag, and he couldn't understand what the problem is. Um, so he swims every day, and he's on the beach for four to six hours every day, and there was no major problem. So not to build any, you know. And, and like, I think sometimes when you're preparing for stuff, the physical side we can prepare for. What we couldn't and didn't understand is the reality was 28 days. Sorry, the expectation was 28 days. And when we started in Donegal and we started to swim in a relay fashion down the east coast of Ireland, so the first week, it's the honeymoon period, we were all excited, it was so exciting. We had a huge team, we had 45, 50 people on the team. We'd land operations units, we'd boats, we were living the dream out in ribs every day, smiling, waving at people. And it was just a lovely feeling of pushing into that area because we worked really hard. But what was interesting, and I, I mention it in the book, is that a few weeks beforehand, before I started, I met this um, man on Venture Beach in, in April, and he still stays with me. Um, and he was a deck Ironman, so he, d he had done these events where you do 10 Ironman back to back, and you can do your 10 swims or the bikes. And like, it was his eyes, there was something in his face. And he was telling me that the pain is a privilege because what you come out of it and that to enjoy those moments of endurance for the achievement. And in the achievement, you'll find something within yourself. And, and it was all this excitement. It was like, there's so much to learn. But as we came down the East Coast, and for people who live on this side of the country, the water's very fast. So you can actually move really quickly. It's light water, you're close to the shore. But when we turn Tusker, suddenly you're 14 to 16 miles offshore because the water is moving. So you have to go very far offshore to get cleaner lines. And on top of that, the miles became from 20-minute miles off the East Coast to 26-minute miles to 50-minute miles. So now you're two and a half weeks in. Your days are now starting to get longer. You're getting tire more tired. And at one point, I remember passing at night. We were drained, we were exhausted, blood pressure was through the roof. Um, I was kind of fighting the control thing because I wasn't getting, I wasn't prepared, I wasn't doing better. Like, well, we're not getting there. And then suddenly you realize that there's a team of people at night poring over maps, trying to find routes. You know, they're working to keep you together. And then, you know, we sat down at one point and like at this stage, you know, to believe that you are amazing, you have to see something. And I mean, we were like the wreck of the Hespas. I mean, we hadn't washed our hair in weeks. You know, their bath was full of lunch boxes. Like, why would you have a bath at night if you're spending six hours in the water every day? I mean, we were looking progressively worse. And for a woman in an expedition mode versus a man, a man looks rugged, a woman looks crazy. <laughs> and it's like the head of hair was out here. We had like, we had afros. We were blistered. Um, our feet were open sores. But we thought we looked fabulous because this is what it took. Um, and then Cork goes on forever, not to insult anybody from Cork. <laughs> but like two weeks later, we were still off the Cork coast. And my father was ringing me at night saying, like, you're so slow. <laughs> and it was like horrendous behavior. And you're just breaking down physically and mentally. But then that's when this team stepped in. And what I loved about swimming around Ireland was the fact that you could be so fragile like, and still have a team who are constantly picking you up 
and being unaware of your fragility. Because, you know, are you okay to swim? What does that mean? You know, we can move our arms. We were arms for hire in the nicest possible term. Um, so, yeah, and then turning, for me, the hardest point was swimming into Dingle, swimming from the Skellig Rock to the Blasket Sound. We relayed that. Um, and then suddenly you're turning north and you have to swim to Donegal. And that took another 28 days. Um, but then it's a sacrifice. It's the fact of how do you keep going? How do you stop? You're in this big thing. And then this is the part where you suddenly realize you know, this is a common objective. We're in this together. And that everybody's trying to get there. So, yeah. Yes. It was a real come down after that. Horrendous, you. yeah. You talk, you talk about the grey twilight. Yeah that you're constantly fighting against. Yeah. What, what is that great twilight? I suppose in a way, you, you know, we do tend to have this thing that everyone's watching, you know, that like when you do these things, everybody's looking and everybody's applauding and recognition is important to people. So for me, the fact that when we finally swam across Donegal Bay into, into Donegal, and then you leave your team, the only group of people who know what you've endured, knowing that you probably won't meet some of them ever again. Um, and then you have to go home. And for me, I liked in the chapters to include the turning the key in the door, mm. because for me, an awful lot of events, I, I have this thing in my head that you always say, the cost of any event is the amount of your life you exchange for it. And I don't think we look at sacrifice and training and, and things we give up as being a cost. And they are. It's not just financial. It's, it's the amount of our lives that we sacrifice for this moment. But when you go home, I remember going into my house and suddenly you realize, like I have given up work for two months. You're incapable of understanding. You've broken something down so small to achieve it. You could only just, it was coast by coast, week by week, day by day, swim by swim. That you're only staying strong enough until the next thing and then you try and rebuild again. But then when people say you're amazing and you're falling apart, and I remember I spoke to um, a group of the INMO nurses after the pandemic and like, you know, people would say you're phenomenal, but you're falling apart. Like, how do you reconcile what phenomenal looks like? So I struggled an awful lot with recognition because I couldn't see it. I couldn't see it myself. I'd torn it apart that I couldn't put it together. And I remember going up, Dingle is an amazing place. It's an amazing community. And, you know, there's people there, like a, a lovely lady would often pray for me. And she gave up praying, actually, in 2018. <laughs> she told me that she couldn't pray anymore. It was just too much pressure. <laughs> um, and she told me that in a supermarket. And I was like, like how do I respond? There was just, she just said, I, I just can't anymore. Um, it's just <laughs> the burden of the greatest <laughs> prayers. But, you know, I think when you know that walking up the street that you are being held in a community yeah. because people did appreciate it. But I think, how do you celebrate something like that? You yeah. know, for me, it was the being phenomenal, being perceived to be amazing and being broken. And, and, and where, where I, I don't, I, this, you've written a great book and I don't want to, to go delve <laughs> too deeply, but where did, why did you have that need for recognition? Do you think, where did it come from? Was it, yeah. I think everyone has a need for recognition. Yeah. I really do. And it's not that people need to tell you, but you need to validate the sacrifice. You need, you need somebody to say that was amazing. And even though you hear it, you see it, you have to feel it. So for me, it was that balance of where do I find it? So what would your advice be to people who are not going to 
you know, get out into the water in zero degrees? Mm. Or is is there a lesson for what you've discovered about how to, uh, you know, tackle your demons? You know, so many of them. Is there a lesson? <laughs> the crowd. Is, is there a lesson for yeah. the rest of us? I think for me, the big thing, and I, I, Emily spoke about it as well beforehand, is the why. You know, I think for me, um, how I came out of that challenge was that um, I needed to see who I was to other people's eyes. Um, and not the media, and not people who'd write an article, and not NR, I couldn't find it. So I needed to step outside of my world to hear people talk about me and to feel their excitement. So I put a, a poster on our window, and my window in the shop, and it was just the swim around Ireland. So I had a map of Ireland, and I had all the days, 56 days, and a picture at the end of us finishing. And, you know, it was kind of day one, two, three. And I knew people would come to the map, because obviously everyone always goes to a map in case they're lost and stuff. And then suddenly, you know, I'd hear somebody, oh my God, these people swam around Ireland. And I'd it's me. Um, and I did that for a period of time until a very funny story, until this, group of two girls, three guys, were saying, oh my God, the girls are really fat, aren't they? I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and I ran outside and I thought, do you think I was fat? <laughs> and, then, and the girl, oh my God, no, I didn't think you were, no, no. And I said, did you, did you not think I was phenomenal? <laughs> and she was like, oh no, no, no. And she goes, I can't imagine what, how you did it. And I said, you don't have to imagine, I'll tell you. Day one. Yeah. And by the time we got to day 56, she will never call anyone again fat. <laughs> never again. <laughs> so it is. Yeah. yeah. But it was that, it was that fight back. You yeah. know, it was defending the swim, finding the value, creating. But I had to step away because I was focusing on how I felt. Yeah. And I presume a lot of people, you know, they have expedition hangover. And, you know, because when you... Like, to, to do anything, to give it all up, you have to defend it. You have to tell people it's going to be amazing. You have to see it. But then you have to understand it. So for yeah. me, it was the why. The yeah. why, yeah. And have you worked out the oh, why? Oh, nursing home. Please, God, heavily medicated. Did I not tell you now I swam around Ireland? <laughs> I've been medicated. Medicated to the hilt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I wrote the book, in case I'm heavily sedated. <laughs> Like, I'm telling the truth. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so um, you have to tell us about being on the Russian ship. Mm. So it was a relay swim yeah. from Russia to America, from to Alaska. Yeah. And, uh, okay, just tell. Uh, it was the most astonishing uh, mm. community I've ever heard of. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> I know. So in the midst of all of the ice... Um, when I came home from Siberia, I figured out how to swim 1,000 metres at zero. And in 2013, eight weeks later, I went back inside the Arctic Circle and I became the first Irish swimmer to swim 1,000 at zero, which was 23 minutes at zero. So it was about holding on and control. And for me, that gave me a great sense of, OK, I'm good, I'm strong. So the same group of swimmers who we had met um, had been for two previous years trying to put together a swim, a commercial swim, to go from Russia Cape de Genève to Wales, Alaska, across the Bering Strait. Now, it had failed. 53 miles? 50, it's 56 miles. 56 but miles. again, you see, bring yourself back to swimming around Ireland. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Miles don't matter. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> when you look at it, just the excitement, the adrenaline. And what I loved about it was this, the ice swimming community at the time was tiny. There was a tiny group of us. And for me, 
um, what I found fascinating was that um, Anne-Marie Ward, who was part of the Round Ireland with me at the time, we had, she and I swam together, we went on to these projects. But it was an opportunity to go back into a team that was similar to the Round Ireland for a shorter time period. But it was an amazing, amazing opportunity to be that person again, because there was something about the person I was at that limit. I loved the fact that I didn't fear failing, I didn't fear like judgment of myself. I had kind of worked together to reconcile the Round Ireland and I loved the pressure. I loved being in those moments. So, so having- The moments where really it could go either way. It's just amazing, And yeah. the fact that you could transcend the fear. Mm. I mean, you, you expressed the fear, you felt yeah. the fear, you cried. Yeah. And yet you did it. You but you, you see, Superman worked in an office. Sorry? Superman worked in an <laughs> office. Like, I mean, he was just a, a journalist, wasn't he? Yeah. And he jumped out the window. Yeah. So, you know, I think we, you know, it's the movement of the two people. For me, I loved the ability. I, and I learned to really love the fact that I worked in a shop and people would come in and some people say, are you the girl? And I would say, yep. Um, and I loved, I had learned to love people talking about me and them not knowing it was me. And, and I think putting yourself into the bearing, you could be in a team that was filled with egos, filled with people with expectation, filled with this certainty, we'll have this done in 40 hours. You know, we're gonna hook and boom it, we're gonna rock it. And these, some of them were Russian. Oh yeah, the Russians were the least of, of the challenges because you see, they had never- They couldn't speak English. No, they, well, do you know what? Isn't that a blessing? None of us, because <laughs> we couldn't speak Russian, but it's great. But no, they were, you see, they, they, they were the most humble because yeah. they would have no experience of swimming in the sea. So they would be, majority of them would never have had the experience of the ocean. It would have been people who would have expectation of outcomes, results. And when you have a situation that you have somebody who thinks, right, I'm, I'm going to swim for 400 meters, or I'm going to swim for 50 minutes, I'm going to do two kilometers. And suddenly you have a swimmer who is getting into the water and swimming for 15 minutes and swimming 10 meters. Um, it's what happens when everything goes pear-shaped. So the Bering Strait is so difficult in that when you turn the world on, your, on its axis, which I love to twist the world around, um, you have Russia and America, it's 56 miles, but below that you have 4,000 kilometers of the Pacific. That Pacific has to rise north through that little, it's like trying mm. to empty a bathtub through a straw into the Arctic and that Arctic has to empty south. So that has to happen every day and that's what makes it the deadliest catch, the cauldron. So for us, the challenge was getting in and being part of the team. But being Irish, I mean, I, you know, we were really good at fitting in. Um, and once I got onto the ship, and we knew a lot of people, a lot of faces from the events. But for me, the beautiful thing was, like I ran up straight away, I offered my services to work in the kitchen on the ship, you serve people. It's really important if you have these rescue services and they were special forces, See this face? Recognize it. It's going to feed you. You will find me in all the most extreme circumstances. Love me. And it's really important to identify yourself with those people who are going to rescue you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I got a kettle. So Anne-Marie and I had brought 20 kilos of food, medication, everything with us. We were a self-contained unit. And I knew that a knock on the door at four o'clock in the morning wasn't anyone looking for love, they were looking for a cup of tea. Um, 
<laughs> and you see, it was about creating our cabin as being a go-to place. Um, so we were, we were really well-versed in team, but fitting in was fascinating and, you know, obviously you never prepared for the scenario that you have like these waves off the chart, uh, three and four degree water, which is absolutely freezing. Three o'clock in the morning, you're up, you have to release yourself, you have to uncurl your fingers, you have to stay alive for 15 minutes, you have to get back in, it's 80 knot winds from the Arctic. Um, there were times I couldn't get into the boat and Anne-Marie is gone and, and you know, you're swimming, you don't have much more because it's taken, it's pitch dark, you're looking at a man who's now seven and a half feet because he's about to save you so they grow very tall. Um, and he just reached in and he just grabbed me by my back and my swim tugs and he elevated me up into the air and I'm still swimming. <laughs> um, so speedos are very, they do carry a lot of weight. <laughs> but it's just this concept of, you know, the learning, the excitement, the adrenaline, staying alive for 15 minutes and then doing it again and again and again. And you become so institutionalized to the risk, to the, because you're somebody else's problem. Um, but I mean, we knew that when things after 40 hours, of course, nobody was going anywhere. We were pushed back um, because the tides were twisting around the islands. And of course, the tea and the coffee was very, very important. So they started coming to the room <coughs> at night, wonderful. Um, and I knew once I got them in, I could get them to talk. And, you know, so we, we tried to explain to them that the tides twist and turn. And I had the privilege of speaking to the Irish rugby team before they went to France. And I remember talking about finding progress in chaos because, you know, if you are swimming for 10 meters or if you're pushed back, you're a cog in the wheel. It's buying into the common objective. And it's, if you hold on long enough and strong enough, at some point, maybe your opposition will weaken. And that's life. You know, like what is progress? How do we define progress and failure? How do we define achievement and success? You know, so for me, it's that big picture of, yeah. Of getting yourself out of the gray twilight. But just for Which that moment in time of knowing that no matter what comes at you, at what pace, that you have the ability to let go. And have you found that, having discovered that capacity in yourself to let go, it's four, you've just got up at four in the morning, you've only had four hours sleep, mm. it's pitch black, the water's four degrees, mm. and you, you, you know, you've transcended yourself and, and done that. Mm. Has, that has, has that made you a stronger person mm. in other domains of your life? Oh, totally, because yeah. like it's about, you become, it's about focus. Like for me, I was more terrified of feeling weak of not being able to control the clutter. Like I had this, every now and then you have all this stuff going on and you don't know how to manage it. But what I loved about the ice, what I loved about the extreme is it keeps you honest. Um, and it forces you for that 10, 15 minutes or whatever amount of time it takes to just, this is it. And you know, and I love the fact that, you know, in the swimming you just bring the goggles down because this is all you have. And if you can't breathe, you can't swim. So right, you focus on your breathing. Um, so there's so many variables, like, I mean, we had the toothed walruses, and I mean, look, I mean, they eat fat, two and I'm tons, like, two oh, 2,000 ki kilos, these big yeah. guys, and they're like a line of them protecting their females, and I'm thinking, oh my God, <laughs> it's me, I'm going to choose me, because they, they, they love blubber, and I'm thinking, like, they're going to look around and think, here comes lunch. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so you have all of this, but to me, the biggest, the biggest thing we faced was human error. You know, the biggest problem we face is whether we'll make a mistake or the team will make a mistake. You know, all these other things are just possible. So what I loved about, and I think that's why I went to the extremes, is that there were times I felt fragile, there were times I felt maybe I'm not in control or I couldn't control that grey, you know, and, and I just felt like by being able to jump out the window, be my Superman, it's not for anybody else, it wasn't for other people to say you're amazing, it was that I could go to sleep at night and know that three o'clock in the morning I might have a giggle as opposed to a panic attack. So, you know, and it is, and it is that control of letting go and trusting yourself and being in control, because if you can't breathe, you can't swim. Um, we, I mean, we all go through periods in our lives of feeling a bit lost, out of control, mm, anx mm. anxious, and feel what's the point mm. kind of thing. But many of us spend a lot of our time going inside to try and work out. And but but you you went outside of yourself to deal with these things. Well, you know, he who looks outside dreams, who looks inside awakens. Mm. I think I looked outside to find what other people felt because that was validation. Yeah. Like, there was two different monsters at play there. Um, but for me, it was about the swagger. It was about owning the swagger. And my father, I was blessed, really, to come through the school of hard knocks. You know, my father was a really hardcore fisherman. Um, and he would always have these things, and he would say, like, no storm can hit you on four sides. Just find your calm, keep rotating, you know, because winds will keep turning. And no matter where there is, there is always has to be a pocket of calm. And if there isn't a pocket of calm, then do what every vessel does. You drive into it. You even... You report when you were swimming Cape Horn, off Cape yeah. Horn and the waves were coming from four different directions. Yeah. You, 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 I think you remembered your father saying that, yeah, didn't yeah. you? You said, yeah. actually, yeah. even though there's these huge waves coming mm. four directions... You've got to drive in. You've got to drive in, but there yeah. is, they, they can't all be going to draw me yeah, back. There's yeah, one yeah. that I can tackle. Yeah. Yeah. But if, it's, you know, if you look at the vessel, it's like anything that comes from the side or the stern, you have no control over, and it will unsteady the vessel. So it is about control and power and strength and driving, because you can take anything as long as you know what it is. Um, so for me, I suppose control has always been a big issue for me. Um, and whether, you know, and whether it's, it's not outward control, but I would have this need to have a little bit, and it's one of the challenges I'm finding with the book, you don't know if what you're doing is going to result in an outcome. So I have to find value in writing, but for me, writing the book was all about leaving my legacy because I didn't want it to be recorded as being just crazy. I'd like there to have been, well, you know, because people would yeah. look back and think, you know, like, what does strong look like? You know, isn't it lovely to say, well, I was able to give up all of that for this, but what is this? This is strength, this is power, this is control. Because I think at the end of the day, isn't that our legacy? Because, yeah. I mean, with my family, I know myself, you can close your eyes, you can imagine storytelling that your father would say or your grandfather, and you can imagine what strength looked like. And I don't know if the next generation down can have that look but for me strength comes in an awful lot of different packages yeah. for me it was power and what now you're you're, you're swimming but you're not you've no. you've no big kind of goals like that and and, and have you have have you come through the drive or, or, or the need to do that are, are mm -hmm. you in a place now where you've got different uh, challenges or different ways of maintaining that sense of control yeah i suppose i I think at the time, the, the onset of COVID allowed us all to stop. Yeah. Yeah. 
and I managed to get off a roundabout I was on at that time, I probably would have been very difficult or hard on myself without knowing it. Um, so it allowed me to sit back and I think one of the things that I really wanted to do was to, I think if anything ever happened to me that I would love my legacy to be available, um, that other people would kind of think, God, it's not about, I mean, everyone has their own Mount Everest, everyone, like if you swim 200 metres, 500 metres, 1,000 metres, whatever. Um, I have this thing in, in my head of all these things, a lot of people, a lot of voices. And, and one of them is that it takes more for some people to start than it does for others to finish because if you have a huge amount of things going on there are other people who can rock up I mean I at the time I was able to do a thousand meters at zero without a challenge because it was like a bit of a functioning alcoholic you know I could rock up I could take the pain I could absorb the sacrifice and I could go home and even though it was not the best performance it was enough to convince other people I was fabulous but it wasn't enough for me yeah you think of the you think no. about the thrill of doing no, it? No, because there was no pushback. So for other people, I often say, like, you know, the biggest problem we face is not how other people view us, it's how we view ourselves. Yeah. And I was not happy, I suppose, with me. That, you know, I, I wasn't happy with me. I'm very happy now. You're happy now. <laughs> You're happy now. No, not at yeah. all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you live in a wonderful community in Dingle, and, and, and you know, you, what struck me was um, your dad, when he was alive, and, and, mm. and your dear sister Mary, who was an amazing character in the book, um, they never said, oh, don't do that. I they know. did the opposite. I know. They, I mean, there was kind of what? I worried you're about slow. that. You're yeah, slow. You're slow. I know. Or, or yeah, you I know, know, I don't know. I, you know, there's 50% chance of me not surviving this. Do, yeah, yeah, do it. Go and Oh, go. yeah, yeah. <laughs> How can I help? <laughs> I know. I always, that has fascinated me. Um, yeah, we're, we're on Q&A now. But, yeah, just so you finish on that, yeah. It, just, yeah, it yeah. fascinated me that... Uh, it just fascinated me that nobody ever worried about me. Um, yeah. But it's a good thing. <laughs> so we have 10 minutes... Start of Q&A or 10 minutes to Q&A? Q&A now. Q&A now. Okay. Um, let me just finish off by uh, saying, wow, what a brilliant, uh, bril I really, really, really recommend this book. So Thank you let very me much, Ian. Let's open up for, for, for Thank questions. You. Thank you, know. you very much. I want to see this woman in the Late Late Show. I really oh. do. I really do. I really the do. toy show. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yes, please. Please. I wonder would it be possible to touch on three little points. Your blood pressure, mm -hmm. sky, no, what was it? Rush of blood pressure, mm. medication might, might upset blood pressure. Mm. All about your blood pressure. Ben, what is your daily routine? Well, you get up, you wash your teeth, you have some refreshments or whatever, but what about keeping keeping fit, Does that, is that part of your daily routine, irrespective as to what you're planning to do? Mm. And the other thing I would like to ask you is the cold, a thousand metres in zero degrees. I mean, your, your, your fingers got frostbite. Mm. How do you cope with the cold? Yeah, I suppose very early on, I'll just touch on the cold first because it's easier one. Um, for me, I, I was able to identify between what's life-threatening and what's, in, you know, what's inconvenience. So, 
sorry. I know, I'm sorry. I know, I know. But you know, when you go into the cold initially, what fascinates me is people are standing at the edge, they're getting cold, and they're saying, oh my God, it's freezing, but they're not even in. So, you know, people say, oh, we're, I'm, I don't like the cold, but what about it that you don't like? So being cold, being inconvenienced by the cold, feeling cold, they're not, you know what, life happens. So I was able to compartmentalise that pain as long as it wasn't life-threatening. So, yeah, the cold never bothered me. I found what I loved about the cold is it forced me to breathe. And I know there's a lot with breathing, Wim Hof, all of that. There are risks attached, you know, and when I trained for an hour, two hours at six degrees, because of when you pay $18,000 or something, you just push yourself. Um, <clears throat> and I remember training at times and people would stop me and I would actually just wave at somebody, but I would stand up and I'm in my waist, water. As long as my hand doesn't touch the ground, it's all about keeping yourself in an environment that's safe. So I would remove anything that would be risky when I was pushing myself into those abyss places. Um, the blood pressure and the cold. You see, when you um, get really, really cold, all the blood goes from your hands into your core. That increases your blood pressure. Um, if you have a situation that you... If you were to take a vasodilator or anything like that, that it interferes with your body's natural responses to hypothermia. So for me, I don't take medication, if at all possible. Um, going into my daily routine, I'm, I'm not as fit as a fiddle. I would be incredibly strong. I would work incredibly strong and having a good mind. I don't drink or smoke, but that's irrelevant. Um, you know, I would be a clean eater. I, you know, I love food. When I was very young, my mother used to wake me up through the night with a pot of spuds and, seriously, and milk and butter. And we would wake up through the night and my mother would feed us with a litre of milk and put us back to sleep. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> uh, that was the truth. So yeah, I was, I was when people would say you were built for it, I always thought it was because of my size, but it wasn't. But just touching on that really quickly, in 2014, I was contacted by the Science Gallery in Trinity College to be the poster girl for the Fat Lab. And when Professor Luke O'Neill, you know, it was because of my body fat levels, I was horrified. But it wasn't. It was because when we swam around Ireland, we gained two stone each. And we gained two stone by being exposed to the cold because your body packed the organs with fat. But our visceral fat was perfect, our heart. I mean, I would have ECGs as many times as I would have coffee. So, you know, being healthy is important to be. And being mentally fit and being sharp, like any time that... There would be voices in my head. I would try and keep those girls very happy. So, yeah, mental fitness, um, the cold, things like that don't bother me. What bothered me was being less than I was capable of. I hope that answers. Any other questions? Yes, someone up there. I'm fascinated by the role of community in your life and your story, yeah. the community you come from and the role of community both when... Because obviously when you're doing those challenges, there's the bit that's between you and your head and the yeah. water. But then you come out and there's a big support. So I just wonder, like, the community you grew up in and, mm. and their role in your life mm. and how that played in and at the moment when you're not doing challenges and you're back in yeah. that community. Yeah. I think what I loved about 
what I love about Dingle and I love about my own community is that growing up as a child, like we were exposed to risk. We were thrown off everything, jumping off everything, you know, jumping from boat to boat. And it was always somebody older than us was there to mind us. So <laughs> I think as a child growing up, we always had that, you know, somebody would mind us. And what I love most about coming home in Dingle is that, like, I would be silenced. I'd be put in the corner. I, you know, I would love to sit down at the table. My friends don't sit there and listen to me at all. Um, they applaud me. They say, you're amazing, you're fabulous, but move on. Um, and I think there is a beauty in that because to be able to step into the extremes, you have to embrace the normal. And I loved the normal. All I wanted to do was be normal. Um, so I loved the normality. Um, I did go through a phase where I thought, if you weren't me, you were fairly pathetic. Um, and that, that was, yeah, I did. And I just thought everyone should be me. Um, but I learned when you're down to two friends, you really have to, you have to increase your circle again by saying, you're amazing. So yeah, I think community, when you break, when you fall apart, and that happens, you know, I would go in home and I then have to reconcile the sacrifice. You gave it all up for what? Where's the value? Where's the why? Um, there's a beauty in walking up Green Street in Dingle and everybody, it might just be a touch of a hand or that lovely lady who prays for me, are stopped. Um, <laughs> but it's those small things that matter to me. So community for me is vital because they're the people who will pick you up. Yeah. Okay, look. I want you all to go away from here today. <laughs> and I'm going to channel uh, Nola's advice, and that is to own your swagger. Mm -hmm. Own your swagger! Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ian. Lovely. Fantastic. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks very much, Ian. That, that was, was great. Just, that was just awesome. Amazing. Thank that you very amazing. much. I appreciate that.